Morning, Emmanuel. Open your Bibles, if you will, one more time to Matthew chapter 6, to the passage which we just prayed. And so I won't read again, except to remind you of the three words we're focusing on this morning. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. It's the request that Jesus taught us to keep on our lips and on our hearts as we go to God. He wants us to have a focus not on building our own little uh, kingdoms in this world, but on seeing his kingdom come. And in recent weeks, I've gotten to hear about um, an unreached people group in Cameroon that doesn't even have a word for grace in their language, and yet two of our members are currently translating the Bible so that they can have a Bible in their own language. Also got to hear about, uh, just this morning, possibly two of our children, two more of our children being converted, being saved, giving good evidence of being uh, converted. Got to hear this week about uh, Rohingya. Maybe you've heard of the Rohingya. They're a persecuted people group, Muslim people group in Myanmar. And I heard this week about Rohingya child brides. Young girls, really, 12, 13 years old, their dads have two choices, watch them starve to death or sell them into marriages in Thailand. And so these women come and are brought into marriages at 12, 13 years old. Again, two of our members are leading a daycare and leading a, a really, not a daycare so much as a, a little kindergarten, if you will, for these young women and their children, giving them the opportunity to hear the gospel and just do all kinds of arts and crafts that we would consider normal and just healthy for a child. And uh, all of this is happening because the kingdom of God is advancing. All of this is happening is because Jesus is on the throne. All of these realities, whether it's kids in our midst getting saved or whether it's refugees hearing the gospel and getting introduced to just some basic care or people being healed, all of these things are happening in our midst because the world and the devil are not the last word on anything, but Jesus is ruling and reigning over all. So I want to begin uh, this morning uh, as we're, th we're really picking up where we left off. So if you're just here for your first Sunday, it's like this is the Empire Strikes Back and you missed Star Wars. So I'll try to bring you in uh, to the sequel uh, without too many bumps and hopefully make sure you understand where we're at. But I want to begin by just sharing with you uh, two quotes about prayer that I've really uh, been helped by in, in recent, well, one this week and then one in recent years. So here's the first quote. It was shared with me from a brother who's advancing the gospel in India, one of our own members who sent out to India. And it's from Dane Ortland. And I, I love this. Ortland writes, a church with a rich history, flawless music, powerful preaching, amazing childcare, paid off mortgage. This is hitting awfully close to home in my estimation, especially with the music and the childcare and the mortgage, and stellar attendance but sleepily operating out of the resources of the flesh instead of prayer is headed towards tragic inconsequentiality. On the other hand, says Ortland, a church riddled with dysfunctions, embattled and beleaguered, unimpressive in preaching, off-tune musically, small in numbers and without resources, but quietly collapsing into the free fall of faith-fueled praying is a church that will bless this world in a thousand surprising ways and leave a mark that reverberates throughout eternity. Now my heart just has two reactions to that. Quote, one is, Lord God, save us from tragic inconsequentiality. And the second is, 
to whatever degree we have good music and good childcare and all those other things, and we've had a mortgage and a paid off mortgage, to whatever degree we've had those things, they're actually the fruit, and you know this if you've been around here long enough, of years of being beleaguered and dysfunctional and all messed up and praying desperately. And wouldn't it be awful if the answers to our prayers destroyed our prayers? That the blessings that came through our desperation and weakness actually led us to be like King Uzziah. Remember, maybe you remember what it says in 2 Chronicles of King Uzziah. It's haunting. He had success in early life. And it says in 2 Chronicles, when he was strong, he grew proud to his own destruction. So I don't want to make the child care worse or get a mortgage or make the preaching worse or see if we can sing more off tune. That's not the point. But Lord, keep us in that battered and beleaguered state and keep us praying. And I'll just tell you, my heart to yours, that's where he seems to constantly put me. And I hope he will be constantly putting you there so that we won't be immersed in a tragic inconsequentiality. Here's the second quote. Second quote is from Hudson Taylor, great missionary and missions mobilizer who led the church to reach the vast inland of the great nation of China. Taylor is just an incredible example of what God can do in one lifetime. In, in his one lifetime, he went from seeing zero converts uh, in uh, mainland China, in, in the inland of China, to just under 100,000 converts in one lifetime. It's exceptional. And Taylor wrote this about prayer. He's got lots of great prayer quotes. Googling Hudson Taylor on prayer would be more profitable than many of the things you may have Google searched this week. It's really good. And he says this. He says, do not work so hard for Christ that you have no strength to pray. For prayer requires strength. I love that. That's good. That's the kind of good slowdown in your life. That's the kind of right reorientation. Do not work so hard for Christ, whether it's in training your kids or loving your spouse or evangelizing your neighborhood. Do not work so hard for Christ that you have no strength to pray for prayer requires strength. So am I, every time I go to pray, too exhausted to pray? Now there's gonna be times you're too exhausted to pray. None of us have that much control over our life's lives. But is that the regular occurrence? Is that what's happening all the time? And if it is what's happening all the time, it's time to shift the pieces. It's time to reorder the priorities. I promise you, you will get more done by doing less if that less includes time for prayer. So I wanted those to be in your mind as we think about this unbelievable request, if it's just given 30 seconds to meditate on it, that the Lord Jesus Christ tells us to pray that another kingdom would come into this world. He tells us to make it our request that another kingdom, another ruler, another order would come into this world, and specifically his Father's kingdom. The kingdom that's ruled and governed by the God who created the world and the God who's full of all goodness towards us. And uh, what we've been doing in these last two weeks is we've been looking at this little phrase. And sometimes when you're going through the Bible, you take big chunks of the Bible and you walk through how each line relates to the next line and really pay attention to every single detail. And other times we take little short nuggets and we suck on them like a lozenge to see how much juice we can get out of them. And what we're really doing there is taking all that the scriptures say about this kingdom and just packing it into one verse and asking, what does this mean to say your kingdom come? Because I got my own ideas about a kingdom, but are my ideas saturated with the Bible's ideas? Does what comes to your mind, and listen, if your primary kingdom education came from children's books, you know, you could use a little expanding. We, we could begin to stretch out what's actually meant by kingdom. So let me remind you where we've been. Let me remind you where we've been. 
we saw that God's kingdom pattern was laid down at creation. We saw that God's kingdom pattern was laid down at creation. God uh, ruled over all the world. He made Adam and Eve to be royalty under him, to be like a king and a queen. And then he spoke to them in royal language. He said, be fruitful, multiply, subdue. That's, that's bring under your rule, subdue the earth and have dominion. And so the whole uh, beginning of the world, the pattern that's set at the dawn of creation is people who look like God, made in his image, d designed to be a display of who he is ruling over the planet. That's the way God ordered the world. And so that's the kingdom pattern is God's, this is not original to me, but God's people in God's place under God's rule. The second thing we saw is that the kingdom of God has been perverted. The kingdom of God has been perverted. When Jesus is here on earth, he says to the people of his day, he says, you are of your father, the devil. God's no longer owning this planet as father of the planet. He's saying this planet is under the rule of the devil. He still has the lease. He still ultimately owns the land. But Satan is currently squatting on his territory and ruling this world that he made. And that's why he's re repeatedly referred to, not just as some sort of guerrilla um, force that messes things up. He's not just a pain in God's side on this planet. He is described repeatedly as the ruler of this age. He is described as the prince and the power of the air. He is described as the father of all mankind. He rules and reigns and exercises an authority over all the people of the world. And the only way, and let me just throw this out to you if you're here and you're considering Christianity, let me just suggest that what I've just said is actually the only way to make sense of this world. Because you see, this world comes at us with two very different vibes, two very, two very different sort of streams of thought. One of the things that we notice when we're in this world is, man, this is good. This is good. Grand Canyon, spring breezes, mountains and valleys and love and babies and there's all kinds of goodness here. And then those babies grow up and every one of them is disappointing, so consistent. Some of them became you. And me. And we grow up to create war and disease and famine and rape and violence. And like, how do these things go together? How did I wind up in this? What is this world? How do you make sense of a world with so much goodness? It can't just be random, there's so much goodness. And yet it can't just be evil, there's so much goodness. And yet how can there be so much evil? It can't just be good. And of course, the Bible's answer is this world was laid out to be God's kingdom. That was his pattern, he made everything good. But everything's been perverted. Okay, so the third thing we saw, and we're going to be getting a little deeper pretty quick here, is that then the kingdom was promised. In the midst of all this perversion, a new kingdom was promised. And we, we could see this in a million different ways, but one of the ways we could just see it is from the book of Matthew, where when Jesus come on, comes on the scene, we're told that he's coming in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. God didn't just uh, sort of bake up an idea late in the night for how he would redeem the world. He promised it. And then he accomplished it. And that's why when Jesus is born, we read that he was fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and Matthew says, here's a prophecy about that. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Okay, so here's, here's where we're at. The pattern of God's kingdom laid down in creation, it's perverted, and I'm, I'm actually thankful we're being able to go over these things two weeks in a row because I gave you a drink with a fire hose last week, and uh, so to go over it one more time helps us maybe stop and smell the roses and just sort of look at things a little bit. So God's kingdom is patterned at creation, then it's perverted by mankind's fall to the devil, and then after that it's promised in the Old Testament, and then 
present in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to share with you some things I shared last week, but amplify them a little bit, about how Jesus was present and how the kingdom was present in Jesus. Okay, there's three primary ways in which Jesus' presence displays the power of the kingdom, okay? You look at the life of Jesus, and you might think, oh, here's a bunch of random stories. How do I put them all together? Well, there's actually some reoccurring themes. There's three primary ways, three primary acts of Jesus that say, this is what the kingdom's like, this is what the kingdom's about. And they are his teaching of truth, his casting out of demons, and his healing of sicknesses. Those three elements say there's a new king in town. Those three elements remind us that the kingdom of the devil, which brings death and deceit and destruction, is being overcome by the casting out of demons and by the healing of diseases and by the teaching of truth. Those things are critical. They're absolutely critical. So I want to go over some passages that just make this explicit for you. So if you're on your phone for your verses, get that out. If you've got a paper Bible, get that out. But I want to look at a number of verses that make this abundantly plain, that there is a, a link between Christ teaching truth, casting out demons, and healing the sick that just says, kingdom. It's a powerful kingdom. The kingdom is not just taken by faith, but it's seen, it's revealed, it's present in these realities. And so the uh, first verse I'll mention to you is from Matthew chapter 4. We looked at it last week. We're going to look at it one more time. And at the end of Matthew chapter 4, we get in verse 17, Jesus sort of the summary of all of his sermons. Matthew and Mark pack it into this one little line. Matthew 4:17. from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so he's, he's beginning a teaching ministry. The teaching ministry begins and it, it addresses men's hearts and their souls. It calls them out of sin and it reminds them there's a new king in town, a new moral order and praise God. So we see by the end of the book, a salvation for those who have offended the king. So there's teaching. And of course, we could look at that if we just looked at the Sermon on the Mount. What's the Sermon on the Mount? It's the king teaching. It's the king explaining his rule, explaining his reign, explaining what it looks like to live under his reign. That it's a kingdom where divorce is rare, and it's a kingdom where lust is forbidden. It's a, it's a kingdom where hypocrisy is, is cast aside, and people are called to live hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So, teaching. But then, throughout the life of Jesus, we see him casting out demons. Which makes sense if the problem that happened in the world is that the devil is now the prince and power of the air, that he's the ruler of this world. He took the allegiance of Adam and Eve, and so what would need to be done in order to display there's a new kingdom in town? It would be the casting out of demons. And now, listen to this. This is not something random. Matthew 12, 28. Listen to what Jesus says. Listen to what he says about the casting out of demons. Matthew 12, 28. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How do you know the kingdom of God has come upon you? Okay, let me read that verse to you one more time. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and was it by the Spirit of God that he cast out demons? Yes, yes it was by the Spirit of God that Jesus cast out demons. You're all bona fide theologians now. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What does the casting out of demons say? The kingdom, the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's the link. The kingdom of God's presence is displayed in his teaching, in his person. Repent, I'm here. 
Repent, the king is here. But then it's also displayed in these works of power. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And he says the same kind of thing about healing. He says the same kind of thing about healing. Luke 10, 8 and 9. Luke 10, 8 and 9. Jesus is giving uh, commands to his disciples who are going on a mission trip. And that'd be awesome if Jesus sent you on a short-term mission trip and he did that. And he says to his followers, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So how were the people in each town to know the kingdom of God had come near to them? The sick were healed. Now this is the Bible, it's God's inerrant word, and this is the Lord Jesus himself telling us how he displayed his kingdom. And it does, and when we put the whole Bible together, it makes perfect sense because the problem in the world is that man has followed the devil instead of God. Man has sinned and followed the devil instead of God. And when you follow the devil instead of God, you wind up in sickness and guilt and death and disease. You wind up with all the effects of his reign. And so when a new king comes in town, guess what? Healings come and you get the casting out of demons and where the devil lied, you just get chapters of truth that make it clear that you're not to live by these lies anymore, but you're to live by the God who teaches truth, who is the truth, and who has rules and reigns over the demons that have destroyed you, and the devil that has lured you into his reign, and also you are, you are serving the one who has the power to heal your body. And you may or may not believe that healing happens in this age. I'm going to tell you this, every Christian will be completely healed. You might have to die to get there, but is Jesus' continual example that through his lifetime he showed some of that healing now. He brought little appetizers of the resurrection into the world now. Now, just give you one last little verse on this. Because some of you may be wondering, how does this all connect to the cross? Well, it's really interesting. In Matthew's gospel, I just love this passage. In Matthew's gospel, maybe you remember what happens when Jesus died. Like right, right when he dies in Matthew's gospel, it's astounding what happens. It's in uh, Matthew 27, verse 51. I'll read this to you. So he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in verse 51, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, showing there was a way to go into the presence of God. And the earth shook when Jesus died, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now listen to this. When Jesus died, he made a little advance party special ops resurrection team come out of the ground, go into Jerusalem, and show themselves to many. Do you know what's happened, they're saying? The Son of God has died. It, it, it's earth shattering, literally. It, it shakes the ground, and it raises the dead. And it's just a little picture of what it will do ultimately. In that whenever, when Jesus dies, he dies to open up the way to God. He dies to pay for a sinner's sin so they can go to God. The temple of the, the curtain of the temple is torn and everyone can go into the presence of God because Jesus died. But he also brings new life from the dead. And he says it in his very death. That's how the kingdom is present. That's how Jesus displays his kingdom as present. When we pray, thy kingdom come, it's that kingdom we're talking about. 
That's the kingdom we're talking about when we pray, your kingdom come. If you don't have those ideas in your mind when you think of the kingdom, then you're not thinking biblically about the kingdom. It's this kingdom I've described. This is the king. He gets to describe the kingdom. If he decides that the best way to talk about his kingdom is through healings and exorcism and teaching all going together, I think it's good. I think he's on to something. I think he's smarter than me. I think he's wise. I think he's mighty and wise. And you're like, well, there's so many abuses of all that stuff today. Yes, there are. And everything good is abused. But the something being abused doesn't make it good. Okay, I better get to my next point. So, the pattern, the kingdom is laid down in creation. God's people, God's rule under God's word. It's perverted by the devil, and since it's been perverted, it brings deceit and death and destruction everywhere. And then it's promised and it's present, and when it's present, it goes right for the jugular of the devil's reign. And it goes after death, Lazarus is raised, it goes after demons, they're cast out, it goes after disease, it's, they're destroyed with healings, and it goes after lies with an abundance of truth that sets people free. But then the next thing we want to see is that it's progressing. The kingdom of God isn't just present in Jesus, it's progressing. This is why we get this prayer request, thy kingdom come. It hasn't come all the way. It's, it's been inaugurated, but not consummated, okay? The kingdom has been established, but it hasn't come to full bloom. And when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying, Lord, expand it out. Just like Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, we are to go therefore into all nations and make disciples of all men. Jesus says this in the Old Testament, it's too small a thing for Jesus to have one country. You know, we'll say like, oh, Alabama's God's country or Saskatchewan is God's country. That is a harder argument to make. But anyway, um, <laughs> anyway, I'm from there. But anyway, uh, none of those arguments work because the whole world is God's country. And it would be too small a thing for him to rule over any portion of the world. He wants the planet for himself. And when we see the kingdom coming, when we see these prayers being answered in the life of the early church, guess what? It looks an awful lot like it looked in the life of Jesus. So let me read you some passages. And these passages basically establish two things, that the ministry of the New Testament church was repeatedly, we could almost say dominantly, a ministry of miracles followed by the proclamation of truth. Repeatedly through the book of Acts, the kingdom of God advances as there are miracles followed by the proclamation of truth. Now, Christendom is currently divided. We have millions of Christians, proclamation of truth. You may know some of these people. And then you've got millions of Christians, presence of miracles. Now we can divide, debate who should be right on what point, but here, here's the thing, that division did not exist in the book of Acts. It is not, you, you will find, you will not find it in the book of Acts. You will not find it in the ministry of Jesus. Those realities of power being exerted from the hand of Christ and truth being taught, those realities walked hand in hand as the kingdom came. As the kingdom came. Let me give you some examples. First example, Acts chapter 2. And some of these where you know them a little bit better, I'll just call out to you. So what happens in Acts chapter 2? Anyone know? Acts chapter 2. Muiwa, Pentecost, okay? That's big and broad. What is that, what happened specifically? The, 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 the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And what, what sign happened at Pentecost? Tongues of fire, and men heard 
the preaching in their own languages, right? Okay? And now, some sermons are topical, and topical sermons answer questions. Do you know what question the first Christian sermon ever answered was? What, what question was answered? Are these guys drunk? That was, that was the, are these guys drunk? Because it, it looks like they're drunk. Which is why the first line in the sermon is, no, it's just nine in the morning. So we're not, we're not drunk. That's not, that's not what's happening. So what you have is you have a miracle of power, ascending of the Holy Spirit, speaking in other tongues. And then after that, Peter gets up and explains through three passages of the scripture, Joel 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, how Jesus was the Christ raised from the dead. And he ends the sermon by calling the men and women who are there to repentance. If you look at that, you'll see it in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Tongues of fire are given. Speaking other language is happening. This causes an amazement, a confusion, a question. And then Peter unpacks the scriptures of truth. And after he's done unpacking the scriptures of truth, he applies them to the heart. First Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, Acts chapter 2, mighty miracle, proclamation of truth, massive response, perhaps unheard of in church history before or since. 3,000 people say, well, I guess it's more later. They get 5,000 a little bit. 3,000 in one day. Okay, let me give you another one. So if we're, if we're thinking, if I'm saying this happens repeatedly in the book of Acts, like where, where could it happen next? Like if I, if I had to really search maybe Acts 27, no, Acts 3, the next chapter, same thing, same idea. Same idea, what happens in Acts chapter 3? And I'll just highlight a few verses. We don't have time to read everything here. But Acts chapter 3, uh, Peter and James or John are going to the temple. On the way to the temple, they meet a lame man. The lame man asks them for money. Peter doesn't have any money. That's right. Peter doesn't have any money, but what does he have? Silver and gold have I none, but what I do have, I'm going to give to you. Rise up and walk. In Jesus' name. Yes. And so this guy rose up and walked. Peter went down to the suit store, bought himself a polyester suit, started driving a big black Yukon, and, and, and started a ministry on TBN. It's not what happened. It's not what happened. He then preached the gospel. He explained the truth of the gospel. He walked through the events of the death and resurrection of Jesus and called people to repent and believe. So you see in Acts chapter 3, verse 12, and Peter saw it. When Peter saw that these people were, look at verse 11, they were utterly astounded. Of course they were. They'd walked this by this sick guy day after day after day for years. Now he's walking and leaping and praising God. They're astounded. They're ready to listen to something. Somebody Give me an explanation for why this happened. And it says in verse 12, And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? It's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Peter does nothing to make himself look good because of the miracle. Don't, don't you think this happened because I'm godly? Don't you think that I'm God's man or God's anointed or don't touch God's anointed? Don't be doing that kind of business. This didn't happen by my power or piety. This happened because the God, look at this, we do not think that through our own power or piety we have made him walk. Rather, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over to death and denied in the presence of Pilate. He's getting right to the events of the cross. And by the time he's done this sermon, 
In chapter 3, verse 19, he'll say, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Now, let me, let me just sit, put this to you another way. We have in the missions world a whole teaching that says, hey, if you've got a culture that's into power, then what you just need to do is go into that culture and do works of power, do miracles, and preach how Christ is the most powerful, and that'll get things across. They'll resonate with that. And you can really win people to Christ through showing that he's the most powerful. Peter didn't get that missions memo. Peter does go into the work of power, but it's followed up with the events, the historical events of the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and then it's a pointed application to your sin and to the need for you to turn from your sin because Jesus is Lord. So, beloved, these things that don't ever walk together in modern church history walked together in the book of Acts. They were friends. They held hands. And I would say that the dominant impulse of what it means to be a Baptist is to want to return to the book and to be utterly conformed to whatever the book says. And what the book says is that repeatedly Jesus was speaking truth, casting out demons, healing the sick, and then the people who followed him were seeing miracles and using those miracles as a launching pad for describing truth and for calling people to repent of their sins and to be forgiven. Now, if I was going to search and search and search for another example of what I'm saying is a pattern, how far would I have to go next? Acts 4 would do nicely. I agree. Acts 4 will be good. And in Acts chapter 4, what you have here is the first instance of Christian persecution. That whole healing the lame man got them in trouble. And when they get out of this political trouble, this persecution, they do what any sane church does. They held a prayer meeting. They held a prayer meeting. And you see the beginning of that prayer meeting in Acts 4.23. 4.23. And they were released. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they'd been told not to preach anymore. So they get together with their friends. They tell the friends they're now under a ban from preaching the gospel. And when the friends heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, this is kingdom language, Sovereign Lord, despotes, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So they they begin to pray. So here's what's happened, right? Fear, instead of the miraculous power of God, is beginning to dominate the church's mind. So what do they do? They pray. They say, this can't happen. And they get God in view, sovereign Lord. And they start to talk to God about the threats they're experiencing. And here's where the prayer ends. Okay? The prayer ends, verse 29, with the request. And this request is a long way of saying, thy kingdom come. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants, this is Acts 4.29, to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of our holy servant Jesus. Now, notice that. What, What do they pray for? Boldness in what? Preaching. They want to preach the truth. There there is no advance of the gospel without the proclamation of the truth. Never going to happen. There's no salvation without the verbal proclamation of the name of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Never happens. But apparently, they didn't think that miraculous works would be in competition with the preaching. So what did they pray? And and where did they learn to pray like this? Where did they get the idea that the pairs well with? Where did they get that? Truth pairs well with miracles. Where did they get that idea? 
the one they'd walked with for three years. That's what they saw. Okay, so what do they pray? Well, so grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performing through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they gotta be thinking, this is just like when he died. It shook like this when he died. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the pattern. And we could actually continue it if we wanted to by a striking pattern, a death pattern actually in Acts 6, but I'm going to skip ahead to Acts 8. Acts 8. Okay. Ryan, I'm not sure this is expository preaching. Well, well, here's why it is. You weren't thinking this when you thought thy kingdom come. This is not what you're thinking. When you pray your kingdom come, this is not what you're thinking, right? How many of you are praying your kingdom come and you're thinking, Lord, let the proclamation of the word of God go forward and do mighty works along the way. Who's thinking like that? I was already there. I don't know how to interpret this silence, so I'm going to move on. So anyway, um, <laughs> look at Acts chapter 8, verses 6 through 7. Acts chapter 8, verses 6 through 7. Why did Philip get a hearing in Acts 8, 6 through 7? And the multitudes with one accord gave heed to what was said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs which he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice. Now it never occurred to Philip, just do it like everyone else and get a banner downtown or to do some advertising. Rather, these works of power were going before Philip, and he was using them as a platform for the proclamation of the gospel. Let's go to Acts 9, 34 and 35. Acts 9, 34 and 35. And Peter said to him, a man named Aeneas, Peter said to him, Aeneas... Jesus Christ heals you. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon? That's like, that's like what Pastor Joshua described to us in Nineveh. This is like what John Patton saw on the second island he ministered to. It's all the people moving towards the Lord. Now, Ryan, are you saying that every time we preach the gospel, we need a miracle first? No, 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 a thousand times no. Acts 17, Paul walks into the intellectuals of his day and he sees they've got an idol to an unknown God. And he says, hey, what you don't know, let me proclaim to you. And there's no miracle there. It just begins with their ideas and proclaims with their ideas. We can, we can proclaim the gospel in any circumstances, in any place, and we don't need any one starting point. My burden is there's an entire category that dominates the history of the New Testament, and we've shut her down, and we don't even ask. We don't even look for it. We do bemoan the hardness of the people we're around and how uninterested they are. Ever done that? Ever found yourself having that conversation? America's hard soil. You know, I've, one of the privileges of my life, I know a lot of missionaries and a lot of, a lot of church planters, and guess what they all say? It's amazing, so consistent. Would you believe that where they live is particularly hard soil? It's amazing. It just keeps on happening. The reason it's hard soil is because the world is dead in trespasses and sins. 
because there is no natural resonance with the gospel at all. And man is not interested in the things of God. And in the providence of God, he often uses great works of power, exorcisms, and healings combined with spirit-filled preaching to draw an attention to his truth and often to advance his kingdom in conversions as people repent and believe the gospel. And so my appeal to you would be this. Do you pray this way? Do you pray your kingdom come? And do you pray it informed by what the scriptures say it looks like when it comes? Do miracles heal? No. Are there people who see exorcisms and don't get saved? Yes. A thousand times yes. Do miracles and exorcisms all work, always work against the proclamation of the gospel? You can't read your Bible and hold that opinion. You can't think that. And I just can't help but wonder what would happen if this fall, when prayer rooms regather, if first of all they were flooded with hundreds more of us, because we recognize this kingdom's not going anywhere unless we pray it would come. And part of that praying is, Lord, would you allow all the members of Emmanuel, whether they preach in public or whisper over the kitchen table, would you allow all of them to proclaim your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand and heal? And, and, and it doesn't have to be anything dramatic. You don't, you don't need to get a fancy suit and wave anything around and stir anything up. You just need to ask God I have a sick friend. I, I have a friend whose erratic behavior does not seem like it could be explained by anything but the presence of the demonic. And I'm going to ask God, I'm going to ask God whose kingdom is coming, whose kingdom has come. I'm going to ask him to do something. I'm going to ask him to move. Now, will every sick person be healed? No, they've never, they weren't all healed in the life of Jesus. They weren't all healed in the life of the apostles. They're not all gonna be healed. Will some be healed? Will some be cast out? Will some take note? Will some who wouldn't have heard hear and be saved? I'm gonna need a lot more than that. Is that the case? Is it the case? And, and, and someone will say, well, you know what? I don't really believe in all that stuff because we just don't see it anymore. Can you imagine Martin Luther? I don't really believe in this justification by faith stuff because we just don't see it anymore. I don't know any preachers preaching justification by faith. Must not be a biblical doctrine. Or what about in that 400 silent year period between the last prophet of the Old Testament when Jesus comes? Imagine the people, oh, God's not speaking anymore. He's done working. I mean, I know nothing's happened in three, four hundred years. And then Christ, the ultimate display of the glory of God, comes on the scene and how wrong you were. Our calling as Christians is to see what's in the scripture and say to God, do it again. Fully trusting his sovereignty. Fully trusting his wisdom to know when to heal, when to exercise, when to display his glory mightily and powerfully, and when to do little displays. And that's up to him. But don't, don't catch me not asking, Lord. Don't let it be said they had not because they asked not. And don't let it be said, and they had not because they asked not because they wanted to spend it on their passions. Lots of people want miracles to make a million bucks. That's not what we're after. The kind of miracles we're talking get you jail time. Okay, they, they brought persecution on the church. And so what we're talking about is asking God, here in this day and age, here at this time, here at this time, when so few are interested, when it just seems like there is no way to crack this cultural nut, there is no way to end the just onslaught of unchristian lies that are just advancing all over the world. Oh, yes, there is! He is mighty! 
He is powerful. He is king. He is reigning. Well, I'm afraid if someone gets healed, they might be confused. They they might get off track. Here's what you do. As soon as they get healed, they say, now we're stopping and we're going to do a Bible study now. And the Bible study has this subject matter, the death, burial, and resurrection, and the need for personal repentance and faith of your sin. No one will be confused. And if they can get confused, you just do the Bible study again. Oh, that God's kingdom would come. Oh, that every prayer closet at Emmanuel would pray without fear, without anxiety, without fear they're going to call me a nut job or, or, or think I'm a weirdo. Just, Lord, do what you're able to. You don't need to stir it up. You don't need to stir it up. You don't need to make context where you're poking and prodding miracles where you're setting people in the audience to make more supernatural stuff happen. We're not, we're not aiming for theater. We're looking to God to do what only he can do. And we're trusting that when it's done, it provides a wonderful open door to the truth that Christ came to proclaim. So as I wind down, I want to ask you to to make a resolve in your heart. Will you pray to God asking for his kingdom to come like it did in the life of Jesus, like it did in the book of Acts? And if your theological system makes you see like, I just don't see the supernatural stuff continuing today, okay, let's, let's just, let's be friends. And would you pray that it would come more powerfully in conversions? that we would see more saved, more awakened, more alerted? Would we live, Emmanuel, not as those on the losing side of history, but as those who are citizens of the kingdom that cannot be shaken, that cannot be stopped, and whose power loves to break the bonds of those who are possessed. Love so often to destroy the disease of those who are sick and loves to cancel the sin of all of those who are guilty. Let's pray. Father, I pray and I trust we pray that your kingdom would come with an advance of the proclamation of your son, the king, who died on the cross for our sins. And Lord God, that your kingdom would come with many appetizers of the resurrection, healings. Lord God, we pray that you might even grant little pictures of the overthrow of the devil in exorcisms. And Lord, we pray your kingdom would come until the very last day when it comes fully and completely and Jesus returns and all demonic activity is destroyed, all sickness and death is gone and truth, the truth of Christ shines on us and the knowledge of the glory of God covers our hearts and covers the world as the waters cover the sea. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.